Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Welcome back to With You Every Step. This week I have Tamsin Holyman. Welcome, Tam. Thanks, Michelle. It's lovely to be here. Most of you might not know Tam's name, but if you were following Dirty Dancing in Melbourne or Sydney, you would know her. She is the creative genius behind the whole thing. That sounds like pressure. It's not pressure. You've already done it. It was amazing. (laughs) Oh, great. Thanks. (laughs) Oh, good. I can relax. That's good. And so the reason that I ended up having Jared Byrne, Yo Mafia, Troy Larkin, Don Bridges all comes thanks to Tam because they were all on Dirty Dancing. She knows how to put brilliant people together. I think that's like the secret, right? If you if you can actually get the right humans together and take yourself out of the mix for so many things, that's the key to success. Hmm. I think. That was quite deep. It was deep. I think we're going to go deep today. I know. Deep into travel. Yes, let's do it. That's my favourite topic. Yeah, that's why you're here. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about some of your travels. What have you done? Where have you been? Oh my goodness. It's such a big part of my life. It's a big part of who I am, I think, and my identity. And I was thinking about this today a little bit on the way over. And I was thinking, I I spent like 10 years overseas. And and there was a moment in my life where that was everything. That was my purpose before I came home and started a production company and directing and doing all the things you know me for. For 10 years in my 20s, I was overseas living You know, I lived in Canada, I lived in England, I lived in America, I lived in France. And of course, you're traveling, you know, to all the the local countries in that time. When you say your purpose. Yeah. What do you think your purpose was? Truthfully, my purpose was to explore the world and to grow from that. It felt like it was worthy. I'd, I'd had that from a very young age. I had parents who had traveled, had always talked about traveling and, and so I sort of wrapped my identity in that. So as soon as I was 18, actually six days after turning 18, I got on a plane to Canada. By yourself? By myself. Flew into Canada, uh, into Vancouver. I had $2,000 in my pocket. That's it, which it sounds like nothing nowadays. It's a crazy idea. And I, I went to, you know, one year work visa and just to, with literally a, a CV. I mean, what CV do you actually have at 18 anyhow? None. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, combing the streets and knocking on doors looking for work to live. So where did you go and stay? I think I, we started off, um, I started off in a, a hostel. And then I, I I'm going to ask you a question. Yes. I'm just going to stop you quickly. You just said we. Now, this is a common thing that women do on my show is that when we're by ourselves, we still talk about we did this. I think of it as a safety measure that we often talk about we so it doesn't seem like we're by ourselves. What do you think? Maybe, but actually I was probably being, I was actually being, uh, when I said it, I was like, oh yeah, there were other people. So when I went over, I, was, I mean, I was just 18, I went over on STA, I think it was, a student travel thing, and they, they put you up for the first week or something. Oh, okay. And I was the baby of the group. And I was so fearless. Like I had no fear. Like I was doing what I was meant to do. And I literally waited my whole life to get on that plane. And it was crazy. I missed my school graduation. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was, and I was, so I, my birthday's in November and on like the 29th 
case anyone wants to know. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We can all wish you happy birthday on the 29th of November. Thanks, guys. And on the 6th of December, I was on a plane to, to Canada. So, yeah, I missed my graduation and everything. But actually backtracking, just you were just talking about women and all that, that's really interesting. You just jigged a memory for me. When I was in that year, I was negotiating with my parents where I was going to go. And I remember sitting down with them and having a list of 20 countries I wanted to go to. And Canada was number 20. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Dead set on wanting to go to like all of the Middle East, apparently. That's where I wanted to go. Oh. Or then it was the Bahamas. I had really crazy places for an 18-year-old. And you've got to remember this is also like 1995, guys. Mm. You can do the maths now. You know how old I am. You know, this is pre-internet, so in the way that it is now. Yeah. And social and, and phones and, and smartphones and stuff. So my parents had to sit down and comb through the list with me and go, uh, there's a war there. That's a bit of unrest. You'll probably die here. Like literally through 20 mm. countries until we settled on Canada. And they agreed to Canada because they decided somehow would be fine there. Yeah. yeah, okay. And your parents had decided that was an okay place that they felt comfortable for you going. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm pretty lucky though. That's pretty amazing parents to mm. say goodbye to their 18-year-old. But it, it made me. Again, something that's come up in all past episodes is that a lot of women that took off young, the parents gave them the freedom to do that and then they grew into really confident, amazing women. It's amazing stuff. Yeah. I I do look at it now because I've got nieces, you know, nephews, but I look at my nieces and, you know, two of them are real, I've got three nieces and two of them are real travel bugs as well. And it's phenomenal. Like you look how young we were and I was like, wow, that's amazing. I, it is, it definitely is the making of me. I started at 18. I ended up migrating to the mountains as you do. In Canada? In Canada in December. Oh. If you want to work. Yeah. That's where the work is. And so I started my first ski season at Big White, Kelowna. And was this the first time you'd seen snow? No, I'd seen snow before. I'd skied before. Okay. So for those that don't know, in Melbourne, we don't get snow unless you go up into the ski fields, which is not close. Like you actually have to drive up there to be able to see snow. So we don't get snow every day here in Melbourne, even though we whinge about our cold. (laughs) No, but we do get kangaroos in the streets. Yes, we do. All the time. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, well, that was my, so I did my first ski season. That began a love affair, like, you know, uh, doing ski seasons. I, I mean, gosh, I did so many jobs. I was a janitor, for real. Does that mean you clean toilets? Yeah, I was a terrible janitor. <laughs> you left them dirty? I don't know. I just remember <laughs> being really lazy, really lazy. And at the same time, I was somehow and I'm, I'm multitasking. I was also, I think this is what happens on the mountains. You do lots of jobs. I was also a cashier at one of those like really cheesy diners, you know, where all you ski and ski out. But I was really bad with money. So then I got moved to the kitchen. As in you weren't good at giving people the right change? I think so. I'm a really bad employee. Yeah, I'm not good at that either. You can put me in front of a crowd of a thousand people and and I will not miss a beat. My heart will be fine. You put me in front of a register to give someone change. My heart races. I sweat. I don't cope very well. Oh, my God. It's I feel you. I feel you. But the the ironic thing is like I was 18. I was in a kitchen and those are the days there was no OHNS. I swear there was no mentors. (laughs) And they just put me in front of the big deep fat fryer and like all the big knives and nothing about that sounds like a good idea in hindsight. But that's how I survived my first season. And yeah, I fell in love with that life and then I kept on travelling. I didn't go home. I was meant to go home. I was meant to go home after that year. My parents got a bit concerned when I called them six months in and said, I don't think I'm coming home yet. Okay. Yeah. So how did you extend if you, because so the visa was for one year. <laughs> yeah. 
I flew to England and got another visa. Okay. Yeah, I was very comfortable applying for more visas. So I flew to England and did my two-year visa in England. The thing about it was I was searching for, if or if that's the right word at 18, the extremity of difference. Like I felt like I was looking for a culture that was like the, it was nearly like the Canadians were too friendly and too easy, you know, which is something mm-hmm. that we love now. And they're very much like us. Yeah. Yeah. Too much nearly, I think, because I was looking for an extremity, right? So, yeah, England was, was this whole thing where I, you know, it was different culture, ironically, actually much more different. Even though that's where the Australians have come from. So mm. you would think it's more similar than Canada. Yeah, but it wasn't. And I moved to England. So it was, let me think, 96, 97, 98. Okay. I was living in England and I moved to Brighton, England. It was a very big education. I, I moved to a really rough neighbourhood. Ah. And I worked in nightclubs. Okay. And, yeah, I learned a lot. Have you ever heard, like, I don't know if it's in Lockstock to Smoking Barrels, but in one of the movies they talk about, like, the, the bouncer wars in England. Like, that was happening on our doorstep. So we saw... No, I don't know much about that. What is that? So basically the bouncers, like a security company back in the day, would manage a whole bunch of restaurants or bars or whatever, and then they would want to expand. And so they would go to another town and they would take out the bouncers of the club they wanted and then go knock on the door of the manager and say, we're your new security. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it happened exactly like that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of like a mafia world happening. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I saw a lot. Did you ever feel scared? Yeah, honestly, Patrick. Yeah, I was 18. I remember this, actually. This is the biggest growth of, for me. I was 18. I'd just come from Canada and I'd just done a ski season. So I was all like, hey, how you doing? Super friendly, bubbly Australian. And I moved to England and I moved and lived behind a nightclub, a really rough nightclub in Brighton. And I get a job as like, I think the bussy of this nightclub. And you start at nine o'clock at night and finish at like three in the morning. And a big T-shirt on that was bigger than me, you know. That was the fashion back then. I remember my very first night. This is true. It was a really, like, I don't know if I can express how rough it was. Like, there was a bottle fight every night, pretty much. So that was what it was known for. And so I'm there my first night and I remember busting all the things and being really eager and really helping. And the girls coming up to me and they were like, all right, you can't, you know, stop working so hard. You're making us look bad. And then I think I went to the bathroom, all these punters were there and they turned around, they're like, what are you looking at? Facing me down. And I was just this little girl and I was petrified and I never experienced cold anger or even a violent temper that, that was in the air. The need for intimidation, right? Yeah. They were trying to, trying to intimidate you. Yeah, I was so naive. I hadn't had that life at all. And so I locked myself in the toilets all night on my first shift. Really? <laughs> True story. And you didn't come out until three? I had to get rescued, I'm pretty sure. I can't remember the details, but yeah, I locked myself because I remember looking at these women's eyes and I was like, you know, in the toilets and they were real scousers, right? So they were super tough girls. I gone to England thinking it was like Cambridge University and daisies and I don't know what. The royal family. (laughs) The royal family. And I was like, like real tough, like gypsies and like, you know, this is what I'd walked into. And a real working class and really tough and your exterior and and a whole world I hadn't experienced before. What kind of caps the story off is three years later, I'd, I mean, or two and a bit years later, I'd worked there uh, at this place on and off. And two a bit years later, I walked into the bathroom, pretty much on the money. 
And I remember a whole bunch of girls turning around in the bathroom and going, what are you looking at? Exactly like that. And I turned right back at them. I'm like, what are you looking at? Literally face them off. There's this moment of understanding that I had completely morphed and changed, but I had lost myself as well. I was going to say, was it a positive change? I don't know. It's a bit of both, right? Because it's something that made you have to get a second skin really. But then is it the skin that you really wanted to be growing? Yeah, right? Yeah. And that definitely shaped me. You know, you're 18, 19, 20, 21. And then I came home to do university at 21. I I did two years straight uni and then I I started travelling again and doing ski seasons. Kind of caps off my 10 years. But I, I remember coming home and knocking someone in a pub and like literally, you know, first week of coming home and spinning around and looking at the guy I had accidentally knocked in a pub by the shoulder, ready for him to throw a punch. Mm. And also at this very same time being surrounded by my Melbourne friends who just don't know what's wrong with me and also realising I can't explain to them, you know, that I just have in some ways lived in quite a violent culture for the last three years. So they would have seen a massive change in you then? Yeah, I guess so. Because I often say that when you get back from a trip, you feel like you've had all this internal growth that no one can see. You can't talk about it. No. And then people don't know it. But then in that case, they might have seen a huge change in you and be like, that's not the girl that left. No. Yeah, I think so. It definitely brought a toughness to me and an ability to dodge any glass fights. Mm. But do you think now that is the thing that's given you the strength to be able to make your dreams come true? I think everybody says this, right? I would never change a thing. Even through the dark times, you wouldn't change it. So I can only assume that that is a part of me, right? There's a toughness to me that I definitely learned in England, Mm. for sure. That is, but of the old guard, like I'm probably the last of the old guard, (laughs) you know, that swift and hard bringing in that way. You know what I mean? In that that Yeah, but I'm sure there's still places around the world where things are very similar and people might find themselves in those situations. Yeah, true. Yeah. And I think there is something about that too because then, yeah, I think that probably gave me a bit of grit. Gave you fire in your belly. Maybe, yeah. You've definitely still got fire in your (laughs) belly. (laughs) So after that you moved to the US? After England I moved home and did performing arts at Monash. Mm -hmm. So I did like I think two years straight before our summer holidays is obviously winter in the States and I was just itching. Like I, I really, I had the travel blues. I came home. My whole identity at that stage was overseas. I, I felt like I was a certainly the round peg in the, the square hole and, and I struggled. I deeply struggled coming home. Mm. And I think that's a really big problem that most people have. I still have it now when I get back from a big trip after three months of being away. I get home and I'm just oh, back to reality, back to life, back to work, back to the things. When you're travelling, you're a different person, aren't you? Yeah, and you know what? I don't know if anyone actually talks about this, but for me, I'm actually really good being the fish out of water. Mm-hmm. I was actually good being the Australian or the only Australian in the room. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, me too. And I, I loved it because, I don't know, is that an attention thing? It could be. Could be. But maybe it's a, it's a good reason to bridge or have conversations with people. And I think being young, like I was 21 when I came home, I think being young and being a small fish in a big pond – and, and being like everybody else, I didn't know necessarily how that worked or how I socially worked. So anyhow, I think in any, anyhow, I just missed it, being overseas. I missed mm. the heightened reality that I think is overseas. It's very addictive. Yeah, and I agree. I think it could be the fact that you do feel special. Yeah. Because I know when I'm traveling, you know, people are like, oh, us. 
fancy and they do make you feel special and you're like, yeah, I'm different. I'm not like everybody here. And then you get to talk to people and learn their story. And that's the part that I love the most is actually hearing someone else's story from another country because it is always so different to how we've been raised. And we're so learning all the time, Mm -hmm. right? I think it feeds that and I adore, I'm so curious. Yes, and, and you're curious, you know, the same way. So why you're here so I can learn about you. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I came home and I didn't, you know, I was doing performing arts. I loved that. I was doing what I wanted to do and what I was made to do. I yearned to be overseas again. So in my second year, I went over to Aspen, Colorado, and I did a ski season because I heard you can make lots of money. Oh, so you had heard that through the grapevine Mm. and that's what was the draw card? Well, mountains, overseas and money because I was a poor student, you know, and I'd been working for three years before I came back to be a student. So I was used to being an adult with my own disposable income and then you go back to full-time studies. I think that was also quite a jarring situation as well. So that independence Mm -hmm. and that sort of self-identity and being in control of your destiny. Now, when people had told you you can make a lot of money, <laughs> how had they told you that? It was from tips? Is that how it works over there? Yeah, yeah. I think it's Aspen, right? The beer flows like wine. Is that what they say in Dumb and Dumber? Have you seen Dumb and Dumber? I have seen Dumb and Dumber. Is that, oh, did they say that? I don't know. I can't remember. I haven't been to Aspen. I've been to Crested Butte, which yeah. is not far from there. I've skied at Crested Butte. It's great. It's a beautiful little town. It's so beautiful. The Rockies are to die for. Like they are, they literally something else. There's something magistry about it. There's a piece of my heart that's there still. So yeah, it was tips, I think. But also in a ski season, you work as many jobs as you can. So I was working, you know, seven days a week, three jobs, you know, on average. At At the one resort? Like how does it work? Aspen has lots of different mountains and there's independent businesses inside it. And there's also the mountain company as well. So one of your jobs, if you're smart, is for the mountain so my one mountain job was the strudel girl. <laughs> what does that mean? I've got a picture of you wearing something odd here. <laughs> Were you? Please tell me you got photos of this that I can put on Instagram. This is pre-Instagram. Oh, thank God. I had. Um, I used to wear pigtails. Um, I remember that. I used to like it. I liked to theme my job back in the day. I was a strudel girl and that was important because I used to do that. I had to get up in the morning for that. And by morning, I probably had to be at work at 10, but that was probably hell. I was 20 something years mm-hmm. old and I had, you know, all the jobs in the world. And then of course you still had time to catch up with your friends and party. I don't understand how I survived those no, years. No, I look back at those years when I was in my 20s. I did seven nights straight of going out to clubs and still going to work. It's like now I go out one night, get home by midnight. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm done for three days. Oh, my God, it's so funny. <laughs> but I also find when I'm traveling, I still get more energy even now yeah. than I do when I'm at home. Oh, but that, it's, that's a whole different thing. That nourishes you. You mm-hmm. know, that's why we go away now because it nourishes you. But I think this is just youth. You know, the, the stupidity or beauty of youth, I don't know. But I was a strudel girl and the point of that was it gave me a ski pass. So one of my jobs a week gave me a ski pass and everything you else. You still I did didn't explain money. what the strudel girl means. I had to make strudel. Oh, you had to make the strudel. <laughs> yeah, and then I served the strudel and this is a true story. I once served Arnold Schwarzenegger strudel. Oh, mm. did he like your strudel? Did you make it? Yeah, I think so. It. And you liked it? I remember, all I remember is he would knock on the – he didn't come into the, the place but he knocked on the window. He'd ski up to the window which led right to the kitchen. Like he bypassed all the lines and he'd knock on the kitchen window and I opened the window and he was like, can I have some strudel please? <laughs> 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 it 
funniest thing in the world. And you gave him your strudel. Yeah, I don't remember charging him. I don't remember. I don't <laughs> just remember that. Do you like my strudel? <laughs> Go, they have some strudel. But I don't know where he went with the strudel. That's the other thing because we were on a mountain. So did you just ski down with his strudel? <laughs> Eat it while he was skiing down? Maybe. I mean, he is Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think he can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? You probably fought some guys on the way too. You cannot have my strudel. <laughs> Sounds like your strudel was quite sought after. (laughs) Can you make me a strudel? I want some strudel now. Do you still know how to make it? I don't. (laughs) You don't. I have no idea. I actually suspect that I convinced one of the chefs in the the place. I I have a friend. I'm pretty convinced I made him make the strudel. (laughs) I don't even know if I was doing my job. Well, so you knew how to do your job right by getting someone else to make it for you. I upskilled. Yeah, yeah totally. I, I mean, I outsourced. I mean, that's where the directing comes from, right? I was literally, I was already, and that's when I knew I wanted to be a director. At Strudel Girl, and you have two other jobs. What are the two other jobs oh on the mountain? Oh, my God. I was, look, I did four seasons in Aspen. So in all honesty, I can't remember what they all were. In general, I worked at... But, so were you only Strudel Girl for one season? No, I feel like many seasons I managed to achieve... Strudel girl. Strudel girl. Status. It's crazy they kept employing me again. And many of my jobs in my life, I think that, because I was quite rebellious, really. I'm a very naughty employee, which is why I need to be the boss, because I'm just naughty. But anyhow, so that being said, I had lots of jobs. So, I mean, I've done everything from I worked as a waiter, which is a big deal in, in America, you know, to be a front waiter. I was a bartender, another big deal then. You'd make money. Do you remember how much you could make off tips? Because for Australians, obviously, we don't we don't get tips. And so in America, they get tips. And so it's always an interesting thing to find out how much roughly you could make in a night. And the thing is, you've got to also remember you your base wage was $2.50. Yeah. So we are talking now, okay, so I left England in 98. I do two years of university. And then I finished my university. I just did, you know, six months in so 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. So those are sort of the years I'm in Aspen. And so that's a very golden era. It was no holds barred and I'm sure it's not the same as it is now. But we were earning like, I remember some jobs I earned like two, three, $3.75 an hour. You know what I mean? That was my base wage. Mm. So you were 100% tips. And I can't necessarily remember, funnily enough, what... I would have earned behind a bar necessarily or as a waiter that was good. And I can tell you that I worked at top places, like top, top places. And I would have, and you'd be a perfect, like there would be professional waiters who worked with me. And when I mean professional, obviously we'd work on the floor together and no one would know the difference, but they had no other career aspirations and they would drive Aldis, Mm. you know, and in those days, that's a big deal, right? You drive an Audi, not that it's not now, but you know, that's kind of un- that was unheard of in Australia in hospitality. Oh, you, totally. You know, I had friends that I know in Iowa that were making a thousand dollars a night yeah. from working at a bar, and I remember they even said to me, "Shell, we should get you out there. Just put yeah. put a top on that's a little bit low, and you'll make a lot of money." And I was like, "Wow, I need to get a working visa and come back and do this." Yeah, but so I never we, did. We, but it was always a temptation. We made money. We made bank. And look, I will tell you. But what I can remember is one of my biggest nights we had. Aspen was really unique because it, it, it was the highest, it was a very highest jet setting population sort of thing per capita and, you know, all the private jets would come in at certain times. I was a coat check girl at one stage for a nightclub and that actually made me the most money in the smallest part of time. Oh. So everyone would come in from the snow and check their coats and they would tip you. 
and then they would tip you as they took their jacket jacket out. And I remember one night we had six girls working. I'm not lying about this. We had six girls working one night for a big night in in Aspen, and we made each two thousand dollars the night in one night. Six girls. Six girls each. Wow. A lot of money. That is a lot of money. Yeah, and I remember us I would. I'm thinking, what, they give you like a dollar each, like a dollar when you get there and a dollar when you leave? They're giving they just, you big money. Big money, yeah. Just for taking their coat. Yeah. No right. one would do that in Australia. Someone takes your coat, you say, you're stealing it, give it back. I know. <laughs> and can you imagine when you're waiting and stuff the next day, you're like, I could just be coat checking. So, yeah, coat <laughs> oh checking, God. seriously. So I remember stuffing a $2,000 in cash under the bed. <gasps> a lot like of in cash. the movies. Yeah, it was. Coyote Ugly, she it, had it under the bed. It's exactly true. Wow. We did that. We drank. We tried to drink a lot of it though. I'm not yeah. going to – yeah, that happened. We would travel. So in off-season, mm-hmm. you would have to take mandatory break. When it was autumn or fall and or spring, the town would go dead. So you'd leave. So you'd go to South America and you'd live off your, your tips. Where did you go in South America? Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico. That's where I went. Central, I didn't go – I didn't, Central America. I didn't go south, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but a lot of people would go south. I went mm. central. Yeah. I love central though. I love Mexico. Yeah, I love it. I'm actually a Caribbean Panama girl. I haven't been to Panama. Tell me about Panama. I've done Guatemala, Belize, Mexico. I've done a lot of the islands, but I haven't done Panama. Oh my God, I've not done all the islands. Oh, I've done lots. I did um, a place called, uh, I've got to remember things. It's called the Fire of the Bull. Oh. Fuego, something. Anyhow, I think that's what it was called in Panama and it was amazing and there was a – all folks are on bars, but there was a, a shipwreck and a floating bar above the shipwreck. And I remember you entered the bar by going through a hedge. Oh, that sounds cool. And it was really cool and, and again, I think Why that really – influ- still there? That sounds amazing. Yeah, it really influenced me because I remember it, this being a secret hidden thing. Yeah, I love and secrets. There you go. And, and I think you love secrets. Do you love secrets? Yeah. <laughs> So for those that don't know, Tam has another business that's underground cinema that is about secret cinema, basically. Tam, can you explain a quick bit about that? It's a secret film screening event in secret locations uh, where we recreate the world of the film with actors and sets and costumes. But you, you don't know where it is until 24 hours beforehand and you don't know what the movie is until it's on the screen. So it's very much about... The unknown and very much about the guest experience being unravelling in front of it in real time, which when we talk about this bar that I remember very, you know, was the same thing. It was so secret. It was in a hedge. I remember thinking this must be illegal. And every very heightened sense of, you know. So do you think that that kind of led into this love of secrets? Maybe, yeah. It's very powerful. It is very powerful. The forbidden, the secret. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why your business is so loved because people love secrets and love things like that not knowing yeah and also if you do that if you do choose to go down that path you have a duty of care Mm. to deliver beyond expectations so because that's a big trust for people to do but they they come to you so much more open yeah I love it I think it's great because I think especially if you've traveled the world and as we've seen a lot of things and we've met a lot of people and we've engaged with lots of cultures, there is that tendency, especially now, I've hit my 40s, where there's that thing of kind of being a little bit life-weathered, not in a negative way, but in a I know, I, I kind of, I get it. 
you know, I get all the things, which is a, a very precipice to stand upon, you know, in ego precipice. It's, it's important that we can surrender or engage or enjoy and not know it all and yeah. yet be wonderfully surprised. Yeah, that's important, right? That's mm. sort of where we grow. That's the space we grow in. Yeah. Even last week I went out for my birthday with some friends and someone said, apparently there's a secret in this bar. I was like, what? What's the secret? Everyone wanted to know what it was. We didn't find it because we had to leave and go somewhere else for dinner. <laughs> but the whole idea of a secret bar made me super excited. Yeah, childlike. So I, it's the childlike in you. Yeah. And so this bar that you're talking about, I don't even know how to say that. How do you say it? I don't know. You've got the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Barco, uh, my Aussie accent, Barco Hundido Bar. So B-A-R-C-O-H-U-N-D-I-D-O Bar. And it looks really cool. It's still there. So that started the love of secrets. Maybe. I think so. So you were in Aspen working the mountains. Yeah, doing that, taking off seasons, living the life. Uh, it was amazing. I loved it. And then my father got sick. He wanted to do a big trip because that's him. That was his, his identity too. And so he wanted to do a big trip around the world. And mum didn't wasn't ready to travel like that and they were totally fine uh, but she was just like and I said look I'll take I'll, I'll take him so he flew to America in San Francisco I met him I got over San Francisco and then we traveled across America together and then we traveled across the world together Aww. for a year beautiful yeah and so that's how I left America how special and did you love traveling with your dad yes I loved it it was the most amazing experience yeah. Ever. My dad was my favourite travel partner ever. Oh. If I could pick anyone, I'd pick him. Oh, yeah. Do you know what? It was also awe as well with dad. Like I, I remember being entirely aware that this man was a walking encyclopedia and he was so – he had so much knowledge and so much history and knowledge in, in him and that no matter where we were, like we were in Egypt and he'd know more than the guides. Not to, and he was not an arrogant man. He mm. wasn't an extrovert. I'm the extrovert. And he just, and he could recite. Just a very smart man. He could recite classic poetry, like stanzas. Classic. He was the last of, you know, the old school gentleman. You know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Mm -hmm. My dad was the spitting image of Professor Jones. Aww. You know, with the like khaki. And he'd wear a cravat and wear car keys and we'd, we were like in the Sahara Desert together and he'd be, he'd be going up a dune with his umbrella, which was a walking stick. How was special. Very old-fashioned and beautiful and just and, – and he adored humans and they adored him and he would make friends everywhere we went. So anywhere we went, he, he, people just loved him. And how old were you at this point? 28, I think. Okay, so you're a little bit older. Yeah. I know the first time I travelled with my dad, I was 21 and I didn't find it as, as cool. Oh, no. As when I was a bit older, I when I went, when he got sick, we went to Europe together and we travelled a bit together and I loved every minute of it because I knew that we were a ticking time bomb basically and that this was going to be a very special time that we got to spend together and I loved it. But at 28, I think you would appreciate that too. Yeah, yeah, much better and... Yeah, it's invaluable. I learned so much. I, I really did. And I grew up in a different way with him. He opened my mind again and he made me think again. And in many ways, I just, you know, I'd spent up into that phase, you know, doing extraordinary things and working and all this stuff, but very much living in the now. He made me think on a different level, you know, and look at things differently. And we traveled everywhere. 
We went everywhere. We went we went all through, I mean, we went through all through England and Scotland and then we went through Spain and France and everywhere like that, and Portugal. And he he was a history tour. He'd always go and see that he, his basic tour was to do the things he hadn't done before or fill in the gaps, you know. Mm-hmm. So we went, you know, Santiago de Compostela because he wanted to see the end of the, the Camino Trail. We took a train. He loved taking trains. And I have many funny, crazy stories about trains and my father. And me basically trying to valiantly protect him from the realities of train travel and him valiantly deciding to ignore me and being convinced that everyone was uh, just like he just living in like, I don't know, 100 years earlier or something. And and I was his glorified luggage boy. Uh, (laughs) And uh, he just thought I was neurotic. And in the meantime, I was, you know, trying to tell him that we were about to be robbed many times. Were you robbed? Well, no, I, I, I fought off some gypsies once, three of them in Portugal and at an abandoned train station. And I had my father's walking stick and I and I challenged one of them to a duel. <laughs> 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 and did they take you up on the challenge? No, I think they just went, this is way too crazy for us. We're out, <laughs> where this is crazy. And that was my plan. I was like, we had no hope. I was like, you know, I needed to... To bring all the crazy. And I remember like bringing – dad just tr- did not travel light. Like he, he he came from another era. And I remember saying to him, I'd get really annoyed at him and I'd be like, dad, have you got rocks in your bag? What on earth is in your bag? And he'd be like, oh, don't be ridiculous. Of course I don't. And we would get to the hotel and I would be like hot and sweaty and exhausted and carrying like five insane bags. And I'd be like, open up your bag. And he'd open up his bag and there'd be rocks in it. Really? Yes. What kind of rocks? Well, usually they were like statues and stuff. And I'm like, what? (laughs) So my mother tells that story about me from primary school when I was young that she'd say to me, what's in your bag? Rocks, as that saying goes. She opened it up and I had been collecting (laughs) big rocks, like literally like big ones bigger than your palm and kept them all in my bag. And then, yeah, I got him in a lot of trouble for that. But they were real rocks that I was collecting too. Yeah. You and my dad could have just, you know, chilled. We could have had rocks together. Oh my gosh. We could have got our rocks off. We could have rocks off. I remember (laughs) we, we did so, oh my gosh. We, we did so many things. We traveled through them and then we traveled through the Middle East together. We're about to uh, Well, not Middle East, all of it. We did, what did we do? We did Egypt and Jordan and other places. My brain is needing a map. And we, were you doing tours? Sometimes. When we were in Egypt, I remember doing tours. Yeah. We hired a guide in Fez. We loved Morocco. I think Morocco was probably our favourite. Mm, whereabouts in Morocco? We did the whole of Morocco. And we spent time. I mean, and you know what that's like when you have a year. I mean, that's a luxury. That's an incredible luxury. So you spent the whole year together? Yeah. Wow, how special. Yeah, yeah. I only wanted to kill him a few times. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, was there a few times when... Oh, I'm sure he wanted to kill me every day, poor yeah. guy. My dad and I only had one issue, which is when I was shopping for too long and he got a bit mad at me, but that's the only time. <laughs> oh, my God. Mine was the opposite. Dad would go shopping and I had to keep an eye on him because I would, like, have to tell mum where he was spending. He was terrible. He was. He loved buying things. We'd sat at like a rug merchant for ages to buy a rug. And, you know, they're all trying to swindle him. And finally, like I managed him being swindled. And then I turned my back and he was like, no, I have the expensive. <laughs> and my mum's like, why is there a really expensive rug on our doorstep? And <laughs> it's so naughty. But, you know, we, we had a guide through Fez, which was amazing because that's just a labyrinth. And that was the interesting thing. When we went to Spain, we went to Toledo because that's where you, the in the ancient world, if you wanted a knife, you got a Toledo sword. Oh. 
from okay. Spain. It was the best folded metal in the world. So we would pilgrimage to places like that. So at the time it was a samurai sword or a Toledo sword. You know, that's what... Oh, in those, I never even put that together. Yeah, that's what you would you would have. And then if you wanted, um, because before globalisation, you would travel to places that you'd come back with your Venetian glass. It was famous. But you'd go to Venice or you'd go to fairs and that's actually where you get the best. They were famous for their pottery. Okay. So then, you know, we would track down one of the old potterers in, in fairs and we took time, you know. We stayed in Granada mm-hmm. for months. I think, really? he was, yeah, he was really tired and I said, let's just stop here. Yeah, okay. So we stopped in Granada. And then that was really beautiful because then you'd have a little routine where you'd get up in the morning and you'd do the same. Because sometimes when you're traveling, you actually need to stop to have routine. To, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And recharge your batteries. Yeah. 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 It's really important. And then we we traveled all the way to India. Oh. Yeah. Wow. What a beautiful trip. Yeah. It was amazing. It was truly amazing. And he showed me a world that not many people get the opportunity to see. And he also had come from a family of travel. So he, he also thought of it as, him, as his identity. Mm. So it was like passing on an, an inheritance. Yeah, and I feel like my dad did the same thing with me. And I, he always blew my mind when I travelled with him as well because I know we'd go through Europe and all of a sudden he'd just start speaking the language. Yeah. I'd say, where did you learn that? He goes, I don't know, I can't speak it. I'm like, you just spoke to the sales assistant in their language. He goes, oh, did I? He was totally not aware of it. But yeah, it's something and it was very special. I think to my listeners, if you have the opportunity to travel with family, I think do it. Yeah, you, You've heard, got two women here that travel with their dads and it's the most treasured memories I have. Yeah, it's definitely the thing. It's the thing that makes you. And when I'd finished traveling with him, I came home and that was a, a tough time and to say back home again. And he was like, well, my girl, what are the things that you would regret if you didn't do them now? And I said, it just seems really ridiculous that I don't know how to speak another language after traveling for a year. I felt like I was so, like one limb was missing. But it is hard when you're going through so many countries to learn a language. But one other language, it just seemed lame that I only knew how to speak English. And he's like, okay. And and the other one was I couldn't ride a motorbike. (laughs) So he's like, what are you going to do about that? So in typical fashion, I... Went and got my motorcycle license. Did you? <laughs> and then I moved to France. Wow. So can you speak fluent French? Yeah, really badly. Okay. Yeah. A terrible. Well, but a you terrible ticked accent. that off. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. I went and put myself in French school in Aix-en-Provence in the south. I knew I'm really stubborn and I knew I was really naughty and I knew I was, like, I was just a bit, you know, I, I could be lazy. So I made myself go to school five days a week. I booked myself into a school five days a week for the whole summer and I lived with a French family. Pretty dedicated. You know, I needed to be. Yeah. (laughs) I struggle with other languages. Like my mum is Greek, my dad's Croatian, and I can't speak fluent in any other language. I really struggle with it. I can understand when I'm in, when I was with dad in Croatia with family, I would start to pick up on a lot of conversation, but I can't speak it fluently. Because that's the first step. You understand? And the second step is uh, you start processing it in your brain, I think. I'm not a teacher, but people talk about this. And the third step is talking. But actually, I would say in my whole development in my life, out of all the things, these travels and these moments that I've had, learning another language is one of the most important things in regards to the fact that I learned it late in life. Because mm, I was, hard. oh, I was 28, 29. 
when I learnt French and I was so bad, Michelle. I moved to France and they test you when you go to the school. So I go to school, they test us all and they put the majority of the entrance people into like the medium class and a few in the high. And then three of us were put in the dunce class and it was me (laughs) and a German girl and a girl from Denmark. Oh. Yeah. So the three of us. So we got this like private class and we were like put in the attic. (laughs) And then did you become the best of friends? Yeah. 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 But we were so naughty. I'd speak English all the time with them. Have you found that you met a lot of friends while traveling that are still some of your closest friends? Oh, yeah. 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 hundred percent. I think there's a bond that happens when you travel. I think you, a lot of your guests would say that. Mm-hmm. I think there's a genuine connection of spirit. So it's not about duty or the fact you went to school together or you grew up near each other or whatever it might be that binds you. I think sometimes I used to think it was like the, the net had been taken out away from beneath you when you travel to such an extent that everything is more potent, more real and connections are forged through fire. Yes, so that's it. That's how I learned. And that was and learning another language old as an like it was so humbling because my modus to operatus is language and talking and communication. And I had to become exceptionally humble. I had to become quiet. I had to become still. And also I had to not be able to talk all the time because I couldn't. And so learning another language was a a very important part of, I think, my growth and becoming humble at an older age and realising especially like you would understand everything that was being said in the room at one stage but you had no ability to talk back because you didn't have the the vocabulary. But they would sometimes talk to you as if you're an idiot, you know, like Mm -hmm. do you like apple they'd be saying in French though, like that, like a, a child and you want to say I'm not a child totally understand what you're saying but I have no way of communicating and I think that also makes you stop and think about other countries and other who have English not as a first language Mm -hmm. right and we often talk to people where English is not their first language as if they're idiots and they're probably just understanding everything and going look seriously like I'm a quantum physicist (laughs) but I just don't have vocab right now yeah humble humble travel makes you humble in the best way yeah, I agree. Where in France did you actually live? Aix-en-Provence for six months. Which Where's is that? In, it's the capital of Provence in the south. And then I went to Paris. Okay. And I lived in Paris. So I did a few years there. And then I, that was it. I thought I was going to live in Paris for the rest of my life. Oh, really? Yeah. I loved it. And like living in Paris, like I turned 30 in Paris. It was amazing. I had a four-day birthday. It was very extravagant. I was not a big fan of Paris. Oh, it just clicked for me. And it was so funny because I'm not like I'm quite like I was like a bull in a china shop. But it was a really good challenge for me. I love living there. There's something about living there. Anyhow, it's a totally different energy. And so I did that. And then I actually was like, that's it. This is where I'm going to live. And I was being very careful with my visas. So I didn't want to overstay any visas. And so I'd actually gone to England, to London to renew a visa. And whilst I was in London renewing my visa for a few months I met a woman who somehow we started talking and she found out that I had studied performing arts and at this stage remember I've done nothing in 10 years like no industry really Mm. not properly yeah kind of fluffing around right yeah just traveling as a travel monkey yeah living the travel life yeah no real direction or anything I think I'd in many ways also given up on the idea 
you know, we were very taught that we were not going to make money doing what we do. Anyhow, so she, long story short, said, I'm, I've written and directing a play and I want you to come see it. The rehearsal, and I did. She was a very convincing Irish lady. And I did. And afterwards she was like, what do you think? And I told her a few things I thought. But really like remembering, she, thinking she was crazy to ask me questions. And she's like, great, you can be my new producer. I've just fired mine. And I don't even <laughs> just next thing I knew, I was like, oh, and, and the play was in six weeks' time and it was a mess. And so I was like, oh, I've got six weeks between visas, I'll do it. So I did. And literally I remember that night working on the set till 3 a.m. in the morning and just looking around going, oh, this is what I'm made to do. Ah, that real penny. The, the penny dropped. Yeah, and it was 10 years later and I loved it. And the next six weeks flew past and it was my everything and I loved it and I had never had so much energy in my entire life. I'd never had so much focus in my entire life. I'd never been so on fire in my entire life and I'd never achieved so well, literally like being reborn and so unexpected. It happened at me. I hadn't searched for it. Mm. It just had happened and I was like, this is it. This is what I made for. And so then from that, I, they were like, would you like to come to Edinburgh and work on a TV show? And I was like, yes, I want to be a producer. I will start at the bottom. And I was 30 and I was going to be a production assistant and I was going to go up to Edinburgh in the new year. And I was packing my bag and it was when I was packing my bag I got the call to come home because Dad wasn't well. And so I actually had that sliding doors moment. So I never went back to Paris to live. I never went to Edinburgh uh, to, to follow that. But I did go home and then Dad, you know, Dad got – he was sick and he passed away. And then from that – I was at home and I, I started a whole new life. I started a production company. I started doing what you know me to be now. Which is a powerful woman <laughs> who does creative, amazing things. Things that I love, right? I'm very yeah. lucky, very, very lucky. So I've been doing that now for 10 years, my 10-year anniversary this year. And that's so, how I started. Yeah, it, it's amazing. It's a beautiful story, Tam. Thank you for sharing that. And what will we see from you in the next year? I'm very much in a very good spot. I think I'm doing my best work. It's taken 10 years, you know, apprenticeship I call it. I'm experiencing the creative journey differently now. I'm working with beautiful humans. I mean, you mentioned some of them before. In a very grateful zone right now. And I think the first 10 years is about climbing the mountain, was, was for me. I, I started with nothing, like zero. I had less than nothing. I mean, who was I? I hadn't even lived in Australia. You've been a strudel girl. I'd been a strudel girl. I mean, surely that's good on the CV, right? <laughs> I'm actually ridiculously excited about the future, it, but truly in my heart, like it's great. I can't, I can't wait for the next 10 years. Like I'm it, excited to see what happens in the next 10 years. Yeah, like it gets better, man. No one tells you this, it gets better does I agree yeah and I want to you know I'm really open to like I've been talking about this a bit lately your your show is probably the right one to talk about it with or, or mention it when I'm 50 my plan is to go travel the world again for 10 years but with the technology that we have now and the way we do it I can totally do what I do right I think and I yeah. think 50s is a golden age like I think we're just totally rocking at 50s now. And I think you see the world again in a different way than you did oh. when you were younger. So you could even go back to the same places oh, yeah. and see it like you've never seen it before. I'm outrageously excited about that. So you have another show coming up next month. Oh, yeah. What is that? Yes, it's Underground Cinema and it's called uh, La Guerre okay. 2.0. Now you know I speak French. Mm. Do you want me to translate that? Yeah. It's the war. 
Oh, is that what that means? Mm-hmm. Okay. I know. And it's set in World War Two. So this is the secret location one. So people don't yes. know what the film is. They don't know the location. No. So this is for people in Melbourne only? Yeah, Melbourne only. It's the 22nd, 23rd, 24th and 25th of August. Okay. I'll put the link down below to yeah. the website so people can check it out if they want to. It's actually a really special one. So 2.0 means it's a classic. So we've done this before five years ago and it was so, 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 so popular that we've we've known that we needed to bring it back. And it's literally, we were like, when do we have time? And now um, we're like, we think this is the, the time to do it. It's beautiful. The guests look phenomenal. You should see, like, honestly, Michelle, they dress so beautifully. Like they do their hair and their costumes. They're amazing. And this particular show is quite... It has some spectacular surprises and just wow factors. It's really, it's a bit of a personal favourite. I mean, I really like that vintage 1940s. There's something special. Yeah, sounds amazing. So if you are in Melbourne and you want to check it out, I suggest that you do go back, look through the YouTube videos of past underground cinema. Oh, my gosh, they will blow your mind. The video for Hotel on YouTube, you should check that out. Amazing. Tam knows how to create this woman. What about immersive cinema? What's going on with that for the next oh, year? Oh, yeah. We are we are currently talking about what the next title is because immersive is like we're talking 4,000 guests a, a day and, you know, that's daytime, summertime, open air where underground's like 500 a night and it's boutique and intimate and, and really different immersive. So immersive cinema requires really big thinking and those big summertime hits. Gosh, that's that's tricky, right? Because that they're so loved. Like we just, you know, we did Dirty Dancing. So what do you go off the back with that? So we do. We I can tell you, we have a few in play. Ooh. And now it's just a, a question of which one. Yeah, that sounds exciting. It so is. it's definitely going to be back. Oh yeah, every summer. Every summer. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This is what we like to hear. So those that loved Dirty Dancing. You have some more treats in store for you for the next couple of summers. How exciting. We're going nowhere. We're just getting bigger. Bigger is great. Bigger and better. It's so good, isn't it? It was good. Anyone that went to Dirty Dancing was blown away. Yeah, and I just feel it's funny. I just love that. Like I love how epic it was. Like I enjoyed every single morsel of that. Like, Well, you should. It was your baby. <laughs> you created it. It all came from your brain. So you should. A whole bunch of geniuses. I was smart enough to get together. <laughs> yes. But you're very good at picking the right people that I have then picked to bring on my podcast. So yes. Thanks, Tam. Yes. Win. Yay. We are approaching our destination. Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts for the final five. Your favourite city or town? Oh, I would have to say, oh, this is so tough. I can't help it. I miss Aspen. I miss that Rocky Mountain High. I, that was a town to live in that I, I miss deeply. But the potency of Marrakesh, it was so full on for me when I first experienced it. you got to pick one. Aspen or Marrakesh? Marrakesh. Forgive me, Aspen. <laughs> Marrakesh it is. Weirdest food you've ever eaten? Oh, gosh, I eat everything, Michelle. Like I'm not afraid of putting things in my mouth, it turns out. <laughs> I, seriously, I'm sure I've eaten some really Take weird that where you wish. I know. <laughs> oh, dear. I'm, I'm sure I've eaten weirder than I know that I have because I'm just like, oh, I, know, I don't know what you're saying in your language, but I sure eat it now. But I know I've eaten like all, all the insects in Thailand and, you know, the, the fried insects and stuff. Quite happily, actually. Tarantula? 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure I did that. I did it all. I've done the whole time. Furry in your mouth? No, I just remember it being deep fried. Okay, so it takes all the furriness off it? I guess so, yeah. Crunchy, crunch, crunch. (laughs) They say there's a lot of vitamins. No, is it like protein or something? Like that's apocalyptic, you know, we're meant to eat more insects. Mm -hmm. Apparently. Okay, I'll let you keep that one. Yep. Beaches or mountains? Mountains. Okay, I don't think there was a question with that one. (laughs) A tourist site that you recommend is a must-see. The thing that comes to mind, the place that comes to mind is Petra. Yeah, I I really – did you – have you been? I haven't, but I've had a few people actually bring that up as their must-see place and it is on my list. And I've actually had a base jumper, Miles Dasher, who has – base jumped over the top. Yes, of the monastery, I bet. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. Yeah, Petra's pretty phenomenal. Just really mind-bending, I think, to figure out how they carved this city and it's this whole mixture of this tribal elements and then this Roman architecture and then the brain-warping thing of the the carving. But I can tell you the secret to Petra. Mm Mm-hmm. We got donkeys. Dad and I got donkeys for days. <laughs> she got donkeys for days. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we went the whole of Petra on donkeys and it was the best. We went to places other people don't get to go because we took uh, donkeys. So did someone lead you on the donkey? No, I rode my, we rode donkeys. You just rode your own donkey? <laughs> no, we had, we had, we had, we had, we had, we had, I had an inordinate amount of guides helping us. I don't feel like we needed the 10 guides that we were given. But then, you know, I think they saw us coming and we were like, donkeys. But the donkeys were amazing. It meant that we just covered so much ground and we climbed and they climb. Mm. Donkeys climb. Uh-huh. They're basically the goats of the horse world. Yes. Can you say thank you in another language? Oh, yeah. Shukran. Obrigado. Efgaristo. Oh. Ah, there's your Greek. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, what else? So those for, for those that don't know, what languages are you telling us? Uh, what did I say? Shukran. So that's Arabic. But there's so many different forms of Arabic thank yeah. yous. I think all shakriya you hear and stuff. I guess it's different dialect, different places. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, what else did I say? Efgaristo, which is Greek. Tushukirderna, uh, which is Turkish. And what else did I say? Obrigado. Obrigado, which is Portuguese. Yeah. Did you know that you should be saying obrigada? Because I'm a female. <laughs> no wonder I've been getting it wrong all this time. <laughs> I only know that because when I was there, I was saying it, how the guide was saying it and he was male. And then a dude said to me, uh, no, you're saying it the wrong way. You're saying it like you're a man. I went, oh, Oh. thanks for telling me. No one told me. Well, thank you so much, Tam, for coming in and talking to me. It has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much more about you, street old girl. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to the world of immersive and underground cinema in the future. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.